We're going to look at Psalm 39. We're going to look at the whole of the psalm. It will be up on the screen as we go through it, but if you want to read it there for yourself, it's on page 565 of the Pew Bible. Now, for reasons that may become apparent to some of you, this psalm was really, really hard for me this week to look at. It's actually, some parts of it are quite hard to understand, but uh, the hardest thing about it was emotionally. The psalms are incredibly emotional, and this is an incredibly emotional song. It is a song of lament, and... Uh, The background to it is very simple. David has been sick, and he has been sick to the point of death. He almost died, and he this has made him reflect. This psalm is a reflection of King David on life and how brief life is. When we sang that portion there, it's um, St. Kilda is a very mournful tune, and the words... You know, teach me how, how my, brief my life is. It doesn't fit the kind of happy clappy description that people have. And that's because the Bible has a, a mixture of emotions. There is incredible joy. There is dancing. There is clapping. And there's also an incredible sorrow because that is the reality of life and of death. And in this song... David is asking for a period of brightness. Having been faced with all this, he's really asking God at the end of the song, he says, look away from me that I may rejoice again. The theme of the psalm is a theme of the Bible, that this life is precious and that any loss of life is sad, even when immortality is taken into account. I want to actually read from Philippians 2 because there are Christians who think that you should always be um, happy and surely if you're a Christian and you believe that God is taking you to glory or taking you to heaven, then why are you sad about death? This is what Paul says in Philippians 2.25. I think it's necessary to send back to you Epaphrodites, my brother, fellow worker and fellow soldier, who's also your messenger, whom you sent to take care of my needs. For he longs for all of you and is distressed because you heard he was ill. Indeed, he was ill and almost died. But God had mercy on him, and not on him only, but also on me, to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I am all the more eager to send him so that when you see him again, you may be glad and I may have less anxiety. Welcome him in the Lord with great joy and honor men like him, because he almost died for the work of Christ, risking his life to make up for the help you could not give me. Unrealistic Christians, Christians in my view who are theoretical Christians and don't deal with real life, will be the kind of Christians who say, well, you almost died. Wow, that's good. You would have gone to heaven. And... And we would have been a bit sad, but we would have rejoiced. But Paul, he looks at this and he said, he's distressed. Epaphroditus is distressed because 
you heard he was ill. God had mercy on him. You were concerned about him. Paul said, I was concerned about him. I was worried. I didn't want to have sorrow upon sorrow. An unrealistic Christian would say, well, Paul wasn't much of a Christian then if he was going to have sorrow upon sorrow because someone went to heaven. That someone who does not understand the horror of death and the fear and the emotion and everything that is involved. But we thank the Lord that the, the Psalms have this, just this realism in terms of our lives and this balance in terms of understanding who Christ is and what he's done. So let me pray and then we're going to look at it. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you that we are able to come into your presence. Thank you for the wonderful truth in this song. Thank you, O Lord, that as we look at something that is very, very personal and very deep for each one of us, Lord, help us not to deflect it. Help us not to walk away from what is so real and so raw that it makes us feel as though we are exposed and naked. Help us, O God, to hear what your word has to say, that as you dig deep into us, we also may go deep into you and we may know your comfort and your strength and your guidance and your reality. In your name we ask it. Amen. Okay, let's look at the first three verses. There are four main stanzas in this. This is the first three from Psalm 39. For the director of music, for Jeduthun, a psalm of David. Um, Jeduthun was probably the equivalent of Laura and Steve, the guy who's arranging the songs. And David wrote this song for him. I said, I will watch my ways and keep my tongue from sin. I will put a muzzle on my mouth as long as the wicked are in my presence. But when I was silent and still, not even saying anything good, my anguish increased, my heart grew hot within me, and as I meditated, the fire burned. Then I spoke with my tongue. David was concerned that at the height of his illness, when he was expecting death, that he would open his mouth and that he would say something which would harm God's people. It can be really frightening to see somebody whom you know and whom you love, who is dying and who's a Christian and a believer whom you admire, and when they speak, sometimes their words are not what you would associate with a person of great faith. And David was concerned about that. I'll put a muzzle on my mouth. As long as the wicked are in my presence, he didn't want to bring disgrace to God's name. It's like in Psalm 73 and verse 15. It says this, If I had said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed your children. When I tried to understand all this, it was oppressive to me till I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their final destiny. I wonder if you have ever experienced the kind of spiritual experience where you're asking God, why? Why is this happening? Why am I so afraid? Why have you left me alone? Why have you forsaken me? Why doesn't this make any sense to me? David was like that. 
and he, he, he wanted to keep silent, not to write a song, not to say anything, because he didn't want other people to... I don't think it was about him. I don't think he wanted other people to blaspheme God because of what he said. But like in Jeremiah 20 and verse 9, where Jeremiah says this, If I say I will not mention him or speak any more in his name, his word is, my, is in my heart like a fire, a fire shut up in my bones. I am weary of holding it in. Indeed, I cannot. He says, When I was silent and still, not even saying anything good, my anguish increased. My heart grew hot within me. And as I meditated, the fire burned. Then I spoke with my tongue. David is reflecting upon what God has done. He's reflecting what's happening in his life. He's got all these questions. He's got all these fears. He's got all this anxiety. He's got all these doubts. And it's just burning within him. It's burning within him. And who can he, who can he talk to? Who can he say? And the fire burned. And so he had to speak as he meditated, as he thought, as he couldn't avoid the question of his own mortality. He had to speak. And this is what he said, verses 4 to 6. Show me, O Lord, my life's end and the number of my days. Let me know how fleeting is my life. You've made my days a mere handbreadth. The span of my years is as nothing before you. Each man's life is but a breath. Man is a mere phantom as he goes to and fro. He bustles about, but only in vain. He heaps up wealth, not knowing who will get it. What he's really asking Show me, O Lord, my life's end. Poetically, in the Hebrew language, he's saying, Lord, am I going to die? It's a question he wanted to suppress before those who did not share his faith. Am I going to die? Why should he be afraid when he believes in heaven and eternal life? I did a program with Sally Magnuson. I can't remember if she broadcast this part or not. Um... But she certainly asked it. She asked, I was talking about for any here who are visitors who don't know, I was quite seriously ill myself. And uh, she asked me, how did you feel, David? And I said, I felt afraid. And she said, you're not supposed to feel afraid. That's not a very Christian thing, is it? I said, I, I, I don't know what I'm supposed to feel. I'm just telling you what I did feel. I did feel afraid. I was scared of that's the same thing that David is faced with. Why should you be afraid? But the question comes and the answer comes. And David is saying, my life is but a handbreadth. And that's a Hebrew measurement. It's the four fingers put together. It was considered to be one of the smallest measurements. My life is but a breath, he says. It is insubstantial. You breathe, that's it. It's like a phantom. Like a ghost, man is a mere phantom as he goes to and fro. He's full of hurry. He bustles about in vain. The noise of the streets, the hassle of work, the pressures of family life, the concerns of wealth, all these things that this week you will experience, they're a breath. They're a phantom. You think they're the reality, and they are real. But they're a breath. They will be gone. He heaps up wealth, but that wealth will be gone, not knowing who will get it. There's a fantastic, if you're at, I wasn't, but I'd love to have been, if you're at Glam's Castle last night, they did Macbeth, 
And uh, there's a line out of Macbeth. I don't often quote Shakespeare, but this is, I mean, this to me is just brilliant. Tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow creeps in this petty pace from day to day to the last syllable of recorded time. And all our yesterdays have lighted fools the way to dusty death. Out, out, brief candle. Life's but a walking shadow, a poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage and then is heard no more. It's a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. Shakespeare had an incredible gift. It is what David is saying. He's going to God and he's saying to God, am I going to die? What is the point of my life? It's just a breath. Everyone around me is busy. Everyone's doing things. They're getting on with their life. They're doing things. But it's an illusion. It's a phantom. Am I going to die? When you go and visit ICU in Nine Wells and you go down into the bowels of, uh, as our, my son Andrew said, Sheil, uh, down there, and you, you see people, families who are in that waiting room, having just been told how seriously ill their loved one is, how they're probably going to die. And then they walk out and they go up to the concourse where there's the cafe, there's people walking back and forward, there's students going into the medical school, there's someone getting a coffee and someone else, there's just a baby being born and others going in to buy a newspaper or to get a book. Um, people running for a bus, people coming in. There's hustle and bustle all around. And you're sitting there in absolute shock because everything they're, they're doing is utterly meaningless to you because you are so in the presence of death. And it just seems so surreal, and yet it is so real. And David asks, am I going to die? Incidentally, there are some people who think that this psalm was written when David was much, much older. And this, this is a reflection of an older person who's reached 80, maybe 90 years. And whatever happens, they're not going to live that much longer on this earth and thinking, what is going to happen to me? And so he goes on, verses 7 to 11, and asks this question, what do I look for? But now, Lord, what do I look for? My hope is in you. Save me from all my transgressions. Do not make me the scorn of fools. I was silent. I would not open my mouth, for you are the one who has done this. Remove your scourge from me. I am overcome by the blow of your hand. You rebuke and discipline men for their sin. You consume their wealth like a moth. Each man is but a breath. What do I hope for? He asked, was it wealth, success, victory over enemies, freedom from persecution? When the psalmist gets right down to being faced with his own mortality, is none of that. He asks simply for God. His thoughts are focused on God. What do I look for is a Hebraism for saying, what's my hope? What, what am I hoping for? What is my aim? What, just where is our hope? And in verse 10, he puts it incredibly bluntly. Look up there. He says, I'm overcome by the blow of your hand. He's saying, I'm done. I'm finished. This is it. Perhaps a terminal illness. And he says, in this indication in this passage, 
that my hope can only be in God, that I have exactly the same amount of time as anyone else, the amount of time that God has decreed for me. It is shot through in this psalm that he is aware that he cannot save himself. And that's why you get the words here of his cry, his weeping, his tears. Why? Because the cry shows our helplessness. The weeping, our emotion and urgency. Sometimes when you're very upset, sometimes when you're, you're very concerned or you're very worried, you don't know what to say. You don't know how to pray. Every word just seems so trite. Sometimes it seems so hypocritical or so false or so lacking in faith. And tears are worth a thousand words. God knows. God knows, he says, that we are alien and strangers in this world. But the Lord loves alien and strangers and gives protection and security. There is prayer and there is meditation. There is humility. There is fervency and faith in what David says. It's so easy to be a Christian. So easy to sing praise to God. So easy to acknowledge Jesus Christ when you are healthy, when everything is going well, when you are wealthy. The real test of your Christianity comes not then, though that is a test. The real test of your Christianity comes when you are sitting beside somebody whom you love who is dying and you are crying out to God. Have mercy. There's prayer and meditation. And he reflects upon that. And I want to encourage you to pray and to reflect. Not in the sense of you becoming more, but to reflect on where your hope is. Because you can have a hope that makes you feel good, but it can be a false hope and it will be taken from you. But if you have Christ, nothing can be taken from you. Pascal, the French philosopher, mathematician, scientist, was alone in his room, a famous story that he, he never ever forgot. And he, he wrote these words, actually, he sewed them into uh, the lining of his coat that he always wore so that he would never forget. He, he was always going to be part of him wherever he went. He was alone in his room and he was meditating on spiritual things. He was thinking. He wasn't like, like so many of us are. We're just so rushed with everything. We don't have time to stop. We don't have time to think. We don't have time to meditate. And as he was thinking, as he was meditating, as he was praying, he became aware of God's presence. And he described how the love and the awe of God got him. And he wrote this. These were the words that he put on this paper that he sewed into his coat. Fire, fire, fire. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. David burned within himself. His heart grew hot within him as he was concerned about his own impending death. But as he meditated, as he thought about that, as he thought about God, where is my hope? Lord, what do I look for? Fire, fire, fire. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. It is important for us to think and to meditate. I make no 
apology at all for teaching this from God's word. It's the next psalm after the one I'd done uh, about a year and a half ago, actually, since we last looked at a psalm. But I, I would make no apology anyway, because we need to meditate on these things. And I'll tell you why we need to meditate. When you are spiritually cold, well, no, let me put it this way. When you are physically cold, how do you get warm? Go stand by a fire. It's just a great thing to do. Go home, get a coal fire, or your poor student, get an electric fire, and just stand there and just get warmed up. That's what you do. You're spiritually cold. How do you get warm? Try and work yourself up, but it doesn't work. You need to stand close to God. You need to know the presence of God. John Wesley, as he was hearing a man reading Luther's preface to Romans, spoke about how I felt my heart strangely warmed. I don't like being in a cold building. It's nice to have heat. It's nice to have warmth. I don't like being in a cold church. I don't like being in a meeting which is dead, where I feel spiritually dead. Maybe others aren't, but maybe I do. I don't like that. I need the warmth of God, the warmth of the Holy Spirit. One man says this, in this world, our permanence is not to be found in the world as such, but in God who granted us life in the world. To combine an awareness of the transitory nature of human life as a whole with the wisdom that sufficient for the day is the evil thereof is a starting point in achieving the sanity of a pilgrim in an otherwise mad world. It is a mad, mad world. He then goes on. He prays. What else has he got? All he's got is prayer. Do you know this? You probably never really got to the heart of prayer until all you've got is prayer. Until you become that desperate. It's intriguing, isn't it? Why don't we pray? I think it's because we think that we can get by without it. Or that we can manage to achieve what we're wanting through prayer by ourselves. Forgive me, again, for another personal reference, but when I was in hospital, I was really encouraged by the number of people who prayed for me, and I was really encouraged at the the prayer meeting here, there were so many people praying. And I don't mean this in a bad way at all, but the question has crossed my mind a little bit. Why did people gather for prayer for that for me? That was fantastic. It was because you were so helpless, there was nothing you could do. And God answered that prayer, amazingly answered that prayer. Why then are we so reluctant to gather in prayer for other things? Because we think we can get them? Because they're not so important to us? I I, I don't really know the answer to that question. But sometimes we have to be brought to a place where we realize that there is nothing that we can do, that we are helpless and we are powerless. And we're like David. We only have prayer. So he asks for forgiveness Sorry, I need to go back, actually, because that's, I missed that out. He, he's, here, he's asking for, for forgiveness because divine judgment on sin can be one of the reasons why life appears to be cut short. Psalm 90 says this, 
Verse 5, you sweep men away in the sleep of death. They are like the new grass of the morning. Though in the morning it springs up new, by evening it's dried and withered. We are consumed by your anger and terrified by your indignation. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. All our days pass away under your wrath. We finish our years with a moan. The length of our days is 70 years, or 80 if we have the strength. Yet their span is but trouble and sorrow, for they quickly pass and we fly away. David feels that. He feels that burden. And he feels, Lord, I have done so many things that are wrong. At this stage, it's unquestionably, he's written this psalm. Um, the psalms are not in chronological order. He's written this psalm after Psalm 51. He's committed adultery and murder. He has betrayed God in so many ways. And as he faces this terrible situation, the one thing he does is he cries out to God for forgiveness. I want to be saved. He says, save from the scorn of fools. If God does not answer, they will mock. The fools may even mock at him. Verse 9, he says, I was silent. Before he wasn't silent. Now he's silent because it's not the silence of burning pain, but the silence of acceptance. He's saying, God, I accept what you are going to do to me. I accept. I acknowledge your sovereignty. It's a... It's an incredible prayer because his greatest need is not for healing. His greatest need is for forgiveness. And I believe that that's true for every single one of us. We're going to take communion and communion tells us that God has forgiven us. Well, so God has forgiven us. Why do we need to keep being reminded? Why do we need to take communion? Because we need, because we keep forgetting. We keep forgetting that we have been forgiven. And then he says, the last two verses, hear my prayer, O Lord, listen to my cry for help. Do not be deaf to my weeping, for I dwell with you as an alien, a stranger as all my fathers were. Look away from me that I may rejoice again before I depart and am no more. Let me rejoice before I depart. There's a song that was sung at the um, Olympic closing ceremony, the Monty Python song, Terry Idol, Always Look on the Bright Side of Life. It's such a dreadful song. I mean, it's the opposite of this. It's cheerful and it's bouncy and you go out, no, always look on the bright side of life. And if we ever sang it in this church, it would be the end. As far as I'm concerned, well, I'd have resigned and we'd be gone. People say, oh, you know, it's a, it's a Christian song. It's, 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 you know, it's good. It's telling us to look on the bright side of life. Isn't that a positive, uplifting message? No. Forget about your sin. Give the audience a grin. That's it. That's life? No, that's not. That's a complete fantasy world. Life, you don't forget about your sin. Life, you can't forget about death. No. It's a... Um, our cry here in this song shows a helplessness, an emotion, an urgency, a reality. It's ironic that that particular song was written as part of the film Life of Brian. And that song was written with Jesus on the cross going, always look on the bright side of life. It doesn't really matter, does it? Jesus died he went through that agony. He went through that torture. He was in Gethsemane, sweating as it were, great drops of blood, precisely because you don't get rid of sin by giving the audience a grin. 
Oh, that's all Jesus had to do. Just cheer up and wave at people. And that would have been fine. No. In order for you and I to be saved from the consequences of death, the Son of God had to come and had to die. The world hates that message. What do you mean my sin is so bad that someone had to die for it? That's horrible. But it's the truth. And this song in the psalm, he's, he's, he's asking, let me rejoice before I depart. Let me rejoice. I'm coming back to Pascal. I'll tell you what it means. It means, Lord, let me experience your goodness in the land of the living with whatever years I have. I don't want my years to be years of gradual wind down, increasing coldness. You know, when I was a young Christian, I was full of fervency in life. And basically, as my body is wearing down, so my spirit is wearing down. Paul says, no, as the outward man wastes away, so the inward man is renewed day by day. The Bible acknowledges that very few of us, in fact, probably none of us, live in a state of constant spiritual joy and ecstasy. But it also says, Lord, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. You're with me. Your rod and your staff, they come for me. Lead me beside the still waters. Let me experience. Let me have foretastes of heaven. Let me have moments of joy. Let me have a reality that is profoundly joyful. Let me have what Pascal had when he had that, that fire, fire, fire in my life. Don't let my life be a boring life. Don't let my life be a drudge. Don't let my life be one of, of spiritual lethargy. Don't let my life be ugly. Let there be beauty. Let there be joy. You go through the experience that David went through and you come back from death. You're so close to death, you don't die. And you come back. And what it means is that every drop of water tastes wonderful. Every breath of fresh air tastes wonderful. Your family and your friends, you appreciate them so much more. Because the reality of what is around, the reality of the things that we get worked up about, they don't really matter. When you are conscious of death, it does not mean that you taste life any the less. You taste it all the more. And for me, I have to say just simply this, Lord, please let me experience moments of beauty, moments of joy. I, uh, I loved being in church this morning. I loved the fact that there was sunshine when we went home. I loved the food that we had, the company that we had at home, uh, and everything like that. It was just great. Sometimes I sit in church, and I don't necessarily have that feeling. Don't have it all the time. But when you have it, it's just such a wonderful, wonderful thing. I remember a friend speaking to me once, and she was very, very conscious of God's presence, very conscious of the reality of eternity, the reality of death and everything else, very conscious of the reality of Jesus Christ. And she turned to me and she said, David, I wish I could die now 
I'm just so happy. I'm just so aware of God. I don't want to go back into that world where I doubt and I fear. Well, that's what David is crying for here. Am I going to die? Where's my hope? Hear my prayer. Don't be deaf to my, we- my weeping. Look away from me, saying, look away in the sense of look away. Take your anger away from me that I may rejoice again before I depart and am no more. Now, if David could write that in the Old Testament, the New Testament has uh, an even stronger take on that because the New Testament is much clearer about happens to, what happens to us when we die and the hope that Christ brings. But the, the emotion and the sentiment at the time, I think, is, is precisely the same. The only way that we can be sane in a mad world, there's the quote that I gave. Um, I have no idea even who it's from. I just really liked it. Our permanence in this world is found in God, not in the world as such. If we are aware of the transitory nature of human life, it means that we've got a good starting point in achieving sanity in a mad, mad worlds. And our hope as Christians is built on Jesus. Now we're going to celebrate that in a moment in communion, but before we do that, I want us to sing a song, My Hope is Built on Nothing Less Than Jesus' Blood and Righteousness. And if Steve and Laura can come up, we can put the words up on the screen. You've been listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. That's www.stpeters-dundee.org.uk. For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solace-cpc.org Once again, that's www.solas-cpc.org Thanks for listening.